Amen. Thank you, Alan. Would you express your appreciation? I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> we also have Wired today, and I was presenting, and I, I, I told Alan, I said, uh, I'm pretty fired up after this sabbatical, so if I'm not there, you just keep going, <laughs> and, uh, and that's what happens. So, uh, hey, good morning. I hope that uh, you were able to make the best of Valentine's Day this week, and I say it that way because celebrating that day is, is different for everybody, right, depending on your story. Uh, this past Valentine's Day was the 25th that Debbie and I spent together. Uh, we were excited. That was cool, right? So I asked her out on our first date on Valentine's Day, 1999. She said yes. Uh, big surprise, I know. Um, and that was, that, was, so that was a special day for us, and uh, it was cool. I, I, but I know that for some of you, that has not been your story, right? And Valentine's Day is uncomfortable. It's annoying. It's, a, it's obnoxious, right? Uh, you know, like, I've heard people say Valentine's Day is also like singleness awareness day. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. And I know that for a fact that there are several in our congregation right now that, are, that had to spend their first Valentine's Day without their lifelong mate. And so that should give us reason to pray and um, to ask God's uh, comfort on them. I bring all that up because uh, I want to take a moment at the beginning of this message and honor those who are also celebrating a special anniversary and who have worked so faithfully to provide hope and healing and haven uh, to Christian marriages all over the central Indiana area. Brent and Barb and Chris, would you join me down front, please? Um, this is Rafa Restoration's 20th anniversary this year. And so, yeah, isn't that great? So you guys know uh, Brent and Barb Miller and Chris Hicks have been serving to bring hope and healing and haven uh, to that. So we just, this is a thank you to you guys. Um, it's this, um, uh, just a blessing from... Uh, Chapel Rock to go and tend to your marriages uh, and get away, away for a weekend and, and just, we just want to say thank you guys. Also the flowers are theirs. Um, so there are 20 red roses here and so we encourage them you take that back to the cottage or put it in your office here in the church or whatever, whatever you want to do with that. I told them they had to leave it after first service because we need it for this one but um, and I had to take the cards back. That feels like such a Scrooge thing to do but um Anyway, we just, we, we thank you guys. Thank you so much for all your hard work. You guys are, yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes, you know, they gotta, they gotta dive into a mess, you know, and they do it willingly and, and faithfully. And so could we just take a moment and pray for you guys right now? Lord, thank you for um, these folks. Thank you for our partnership in the gospel. Um, God, the first institution that you created on planet earth was marriage when you put Adam and Eve together and, and um, you were interested in making helpmates suitable for one another, the text says. And so sometimes that, that, it's, it's tough for us to see how that can work in, in painful and hard situations. And so th these people have, have stepped into the gap that way to bring healing and hope and wholeness uh, to marriages that are either on the verge of breaking or have already indeed broken. And, and so they, they help Couples find a way to restore covenant, and that's hard. And so I just, I'm thankful, God, for 20 years of faithful ministry, and ask your blessing on them for another 20 and beyond, until you come again, God, that we can work together and partner together in the gospel to bring hope and healing and wholeness and haven to uh, couples all over our area. We love and thank you. Thank you for Rafa, God. Ask your blessing on them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Would you say thank you one more time?
Hey, I'm grateful that you're here. Thanks for joining us uh, on site. And for those watching online, grateful that you did that. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 43 through 51. That's our text today. John 1, 43 to 51. While you're turning there, either in your physical Bible or your Bible app, I want to give you a brief report on the first time, or on the, the first part of my sabbatical time uh, this year. Take just a moment. I, the last couple weeks, this didn't really fit, but it fits today to take a moment and, and to... Um, Thank you, again, for that, the, the freedom to do that, but to report on that. Uh, the time frame was the first three weeks of January. Spent the first few days just kind of hanging out with the kids and uh, tried to do some projects around the house, but it was cold, uh, and I didn't really want to do much of anything, um, and so mostly just resting. Uh, the other part was spent out west. Uh, so on the 18th, I flew out to Spokane, Washington, uh, hung out kind of in, there's a, a hotel in downtown Spokane that had a restaurant in the basement, and, you know, it was just kind of a place to be. And so I just spent a couple days reading and journaling, and I'll tell you more about what I read uh, at another time, but uh, it was just a chance to kind of catch my breath, honestly, and it was such a blessing. But part of the reason I went there first was that there's a book uh, called Disciple Shift that our staff and elders have been reading, written by a pastor whose church is in Post Falls, Idaho. That's well, like a half an hour from Spokane. So I uh, rented a car and, and <laughs> was thinking I would bug around Spokane a little bit, look around, but they got like eight inches of snow right before I got there. So the whole city just kind of shut down, which was fine. It ended up being a blessing. Uh, but I drove there for church on Sunday morning, had a great morning at Real Life Ministries in Post Falls, came back, turned in the rental car, got an Uber back to the hotel, and then at like midnight, I went up to the train station, caught a train overnight thing um, to Whitefish, Montana. My friend Roger picked me up, and then we drove like two hours uh, off into the wild uh, to spend uh, some time there at his uh, retreat called Peaceful Pause. It's on 40 acres of uh, a land between Flathead Lake and Glacier National Park, backs up to National Forest. It was, it was awesome. Uh, and, and the routine every day was exactly what I needed. Um, they, have a, they're, they're, they have a liturgy of the land that they do. And it, the liturgy is a, a time of worship and prayer. And so every morning at 8 o'clock, you know, I'd get up early and spend some time alone with the Lord. And then at 8, um, I'd walk up to the house, usually in the dark still. And um, there was a time of devotion and prayer, reading scripture together. And then I'd go back to the house, and I was alone the whole rest of the day. Um, just reading, spending time with Jesus, pouring over books, reading in the Word, journaling. I've not been much of a journaler, but I kind of fell in love with it on this trip. Um, and then at dinner was at 6, I'd go back up to the house. Uh, from my little cabin, and uh, then there was an evening liturgy at 8, and I'd go back and read for a while and go to bed. Uh, it was a wonderful time of spiritual renewal. I don't feel totally rested yet. I'm still looking forward to the fall portion in September and October, but my tank, spiritually, my tank is like brimming. I'm, I'm, I'm overloaded. I'm so full right now. Uh, if you've had a conversation with me recently, you probably know that. Like, dude, slow down. I'm excited, and I talk faster when I get excited. Um, and caffeinated, that doesn't help. But uh, it, was, it was awesome. So I know some of you saw my Facebook video, the pictures that I showed before sabbatical. I want to show you a couple more. Um, so this is, this is my, my host, Roger and Deb Andrus, dear friends. Uh, Roger was a pharmacist for 10 years before the Lord called him into ministry. And so we were actually in Bible college together. We had a preaching class together. Uh, he's a few years ahead of me. And, and Deb, his wife, was a nurse for a lot of years. This is the entrance to their property. Just, just a beautiful place. Um, and so that was the little cabin I stayed in. Uh, you know, it's not big. I have a couple more pictures here of this. Just, you know, 
small little uh, area to, to rest, kind of the living, dining, kitchen, everything <laughs> spot. There's a bathroom on the other side of that wall. Um, you know, it's not huge, but it's enough. It was enough space to be. And then every morning, that was my view for my quiet time. You know, it was like, this will do. Um, that was appropriately epic. And, and, but this is Roger's view out his window. <laughs> uh, it's a two, his, their log, I had a cabin, they had a log home, and it's set two stories, and so he's up a little higher, um, you know, and so it's, it's quite, a, quite a contrast, and it's just a beautiful place. Um, he's got a pathway that leads around this acre, it's a prayer path, and along the way there are different markers. There's 12 uncut stacked stones, like an altar in the Old Testament. There's, uh, and this cross, it's like, these are like four by six beams, um, and this is a picture that we took on the first day when they're showing me the path and kind of teaching me how to snowshoe, but um, there were a couple times later I went back on my own and had some pretty, <laughs> a strong encounter with Jesus at the cross. Um, just out of frame, there's a little bench and, and an empty chair, and you sit on the bench and you envision Jesus in the chair and you talk in front of the cross. Um, and it, 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 was, it was powerful. Those are some of the pictures I took. Unbeknownst to me, though, Roger also took some pictures. Uh, the third day I was there, I went out snowshoeing by myself and fell. <laughs> I did not know that he had a trail cam. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm, I'm out there, you know, and I, I've got twisted up in my show, snowshoes, and they work fine, right? You know, and I, I'm you know, I'm dusting myself off, right? And I'm looking around, just like, okay, I don't think anybody saw me. I was wrong. <laughs> so I went up to the house that night for dinner, and Roger had this mischievous smile on his face, and he's like, hey, Case, come on in. I want to show you some pictures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had no idea I had even been seen. And that leads us back to our text. Last Sunday, we started a series from John's Gospel entitled The Calling. And from now until Easter, we're looking at how Jesus calls and trains his disciples. And what I want to tell you today is this. We live out our calling in the confidence that we are seen and known and loved by Jesus. We live out our calling as Jesus' disciples in the confidence that we are seen and known and loved by Jesus. And as you grow in your awareness of that, you gain the confidence you need to live like one of Jesus' disciples. So what I want to do is to look at how a couple of Jesus' disciples learned this in, in our text today. Look with me at John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. Let's just kind of work our way through this passage. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now, there are a couple things I want you to note about that. First of all, the word finding is, 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 has a Greek root with our word eureka. Like when a scientist discovers a new element, right? Eureka, I found it. So there's, it's, it's connected with this idea of, hey, this is great. Luke 15, the, the parable, you know, like when they find the lost sheep and the lost coin. I found it. Rejoice with me. I found it. It's the same word. So Jesus finds, this is a happy word. Yay, it was lost, and I found it. Yay, I found you. And then the very next verse, we're going to see that Philip found Nathaniel, right? So there's this, this joy that's present in this word. 
Right? And he says, follow me. That's kind of one of the main, two main words for discipleship in the New Testament. It literally means walk behind me, imitate me. But it's, it's connected very carefully with follow me. Look at verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael, there it is again, and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about who the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Let's pause. So, you know, a, a couple things about this. Um, who, like, who is Nathanael? Well, he's not listed in the other Gospels, but they do list Bartholomew. And most scholars are convinced that's the same guy. Bartholomew in English is translating a Hebrew phrase, Bar Tolmai, which means the son of Tolmai. So Nathaniel is probably, his full name is Nathaniel Bartolmai, right? Bar Philip, or excuse me, Nathaniel, the son of uh, Tolmai. It's probably who he is. That's, that's the same guy, all right? And, and he says, you know, Philip says, we, we found the one Moses wrote about. And he's like, Nazareth? How, what are you, Nazareth? Come on. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on with that. Some scholars think that there might have been some rivalry between Bethsaida and Nazareth. We don't, I don't know, like they're, you know, rivals in football. I don't know, like, probably not. Um, Nazareth was just on the other side of the hill from Sephoris, which was a heavily Gentile city. Um, now, today, Bethsaida is completely abandoned, right? We were there in Israel. There's nothing there. I mean, there's buildings. That's it. It's empty, and it's small. Nazareth is huge. It's a modern city, right? Because, I think primarily because of its connection to Jesus. In his time, they were roughly the same size. Bethsaida might have even been bigger. So he's, I don't know if he's all oh, those you know, bumpkins over there in the country. I don't know where he's coming from, but he's got this preconceived negative stereotype of Nazareth. He goes, can anything good from there? And look at what Philip says. Come and see. He's been following Jesus for one day, and he's already imitating him. Right? Because that's what he did last week. If you didn't hear last week's message, you should probably go back. Because it's earlier, the, the section just prior to this one in John. He's been following Jesus one day. Come and see. That's exactly what, what happened earlier. Right? Look at the verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him. So Nathanael hasn't said a word yet. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus sees him. I think that's significant. The word pops up five times down through this passage. It's the normal word for seeing, but, but I want you to look at how Nathaniel connects it to knowing in the next verse. Look at this. He says, Jesus saw him. He makes this statement about it. In verse 48, how do you know me? Nathaniel asks. So John is, is making a connection here between being, being seen and being known. You see that? And Jesus says about Nathanael, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Now that, that word pops up 11 times in the New Testament. Most of them, 8 out of the 11, are very negative. Like this talk, calling somebody a liar, calling someone false. The word means to be false or a trickster, to, to be a liar. Most of those uses are negative. And when they're positive, it's kind of a negative way to say a positive thing, like, like here. There are a couple other places where to say that someone is in them is no deceit, they tell the truth, they're honest. It's just kind of, it's a negative way to say a positive thing. We also see this 
in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, 22. Um, so Jesus says this about his character. This, this man is true. He's honest. There's no deceit. <laughs> and how do you know me? And he says, before Philip called you, look at this. He says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, he says, I saw you. Again, there's this emphasis on Jesus seeing him. And unfortunately, in order to make this read smoothly in English, the NIV does something here that is a little bit frustrating because it obscures something in the original text that I think is significant. In the original Greek text of this verse, the, the verb, I saw you, is last in the sentence. Greeks' rules about syntax, like where you can have a word in a sentence and have it make sense, are looser than English's, Okay? It's last. And typically, having it first or last is a place of emphasis. So what Jesus says literally here in John's gospel is, right, he says, while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you, I saw you. It's how it reads in the original. The emphasis is on that, I see you, Nathaniel. So what, how does he respond? Well, look at verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Right? It, his response is not too dissimilar from someone else who realized that God saw them. Someone in the Old Testament, we'll look at that in a little while. Look with me at verse 50. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Now, you believe could also be a question. Do you believe? We're not totally sure how to do that there. Either way, the, the point's the same. Verse 51, he then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you're like, well, when did that happen? At Jesus' ascension. Nathaniel was there. <laughs> he saw it. He looked up, saw angels, saw Jesus ascending. Like this, he saw this happen. So this, this was literally true, right? But that's a reference, not forward, but backward. It's looking back to the story about Jacob in Genesis 28. 10 to 14. This is a major thematic point. I'll come, I'll come back to that, okay? L listen, knowing that Jesus sees us and knows us and loves us, it gives us a massive confidence boost to live out the calling that he's placed on our life. And, and this text provides three clear examples of that. And, and Jesus is, is teaching his disciples how to have the confidence to live out their calling, right? And th and there are three ways that he does it. Here's the first one. Number one, we are seen he wanted them to know that they were seen. We are seen. One of the major themes of the Bible is that God always sees us. We tend to think of the omniscience of God, that God knows everything, he sees everything all at once everywhere. We tend to think of that as functioning on like a universe-wide scale. There's nowhere in the universe that God is not aware of. God knows every particle of dust that's orbiting Alpha Centauri right? Amazing. And we're usually comfortable with it at that scale. But you apply that to your own walk, and all of a sudden it can get a little discomforting, right? Like, he knows everything I think, say, and do. E everything he knows, right? That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, to go into our Father, quote, and pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. No matter what we're doing, right, we are seen, and this theme runs all through the Bible. 
God asked the question in the garden, where are you? It's rhetorical. <laughs> he knows, right? Hagar, in, in Genesis 16, the slave woman of Abram and Sarai, their names have not yet been changed, she runs away from her mistress. She's the mother of Abraham's child, Ishmael, and she runs away in Genesis 16. And God speaks to her via the angel of the Lord. The text says in Genesis 16, 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. David writes in Psalm 139, we read a portion of it earlier, right? Later in the psalm, he writes, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God promises to keep his eye focused on his people in Jeremiah 24 verse 6 where he says, My eyes will watch over them for their good. There is never a time that you are not constantly observed by God. So when Jesus says to Nathaniel, you believe because I told you I saw you. It looks backwards into those Old Testament passages, yes, but it also looks forwards. It looks forward to the end of John's gospel. When, John will, when Jesus will say to Thomas, right? Thomas, Jesus appears to the, the, now the ten, he's not there and Judas is dead. He appears to the ten and, and Thomas isn't there for whatever reason. And he says, well, unless I see him and put my finger where the wounds were, I won't believe. So Jesus appears again later when, and Thomas is there. Jesus says in the Greek, literally, Thomas, come here and bring your finger. And he, he proves to him that he's alive, right? And he, he tells Thomas there in John 20, 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you know who he's talking about there? Yes, you. He's Jesus is talking about you in that verse who have not yet seen his risen and glorified body, one day, one day our faith will become sight. One day we will see with human eyes our Savior. Not yet. And so now it's, we believe. So it looks forward to that, but it looks even further ahead. It looks further ahead in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when John, same author, writes where Jesus says to each church, I know your deeds. I see you. Now, for those who are afraid of judgment, that, that thought is terrifying. Right? I heard one of my favorite stories told by Matt Proctor, the president of Ozark Christian College. He talks about a robber who broke into a house late one night. And he's kind of sweeping around with his flashlight looking for valuable stuff. And he hears this voice. It's not even, it didn't even sound human. But he hears this voice say, Jesus is watching you. And he, he freezes, right? Like, what and he's, he's whipping his, you know, flashlight beam around, and he, Jesus is watching you. And he's freaking out, and his beam sweeps over a parrot in a cage. It's an African gray, the, the best speaking parrot of all of them, right? And he's like, he focuses on it, and he sees the bird's beak move. Jesus is watching you. And then he hears this, this low growl. And, the, camera, and the, the, the beam drifts down, and there's this giant Rottweiler under the cage. And the bird goes, sick him, Jesus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know who names their dog Jesus. Uh, 
Listen, if, if, you're, if you're scared of judgment, the idea that Jesus sees you continually is terrifying. I heard about a school that had an elf on the shelf. You've seen that thing, right? And it's just reflected the old song. He knows you and you're sleeping. He knows, right? It's, the elf reports back to Santa. But they actually put a Bluetooth-enabled Santa cam on the elf on the shelf. Like they're training children to live in a surveillance state. I'm not sure this is wise. And Russell Moore commenting on that, he says, what stands out about the elf on the shelf is how strikingly more comprehensive the seeing of the God of the Bible is. Hagar encounters God in the wilderness. This is a woman who is considered dispensable, who's no longer useful and thus invisible to her community. But God sees her. She is not alone. The point is that, at least in John, theologically right here, him seeing us takes precedence over our seeing him he sees us continually sometimes we lose sight of him some people struggle with that we are seen by jesus and for those who love him who are following him who depend on him that gives us the confidence to live like him but that's not all not only are we seen we are known pulitzer prize winning author pearl s buck wrote i love people i love my family my children But inside myself is a place where I live all alone. Now, if you don't know her story, let me tell you a little bit about it. Pearl Buck was the child of missionaries to China. And she was one herself for a little while in the second decade of the 1900s. But ultimately, she rejected a need for global missions, at least the way that the Presbyterian Church did it in the early part of the 1900s. And and I couldn't tell if she continued in her faith into her later years. We use the term deconstruct. They would not have used it back then. Um, Maybe. It's hard to tell. Hard to know for sure. I don't know if she remained faithful to the Lord in in her later years. As I learned more about her story, I began to get the impression that while she was indeed a strong, confident woman, she knew her own mind, she achieved incredible success in her lifetime, I don't believe she felt seen I don't believe she felt known for a person to say this. I don't think this is the voice of someone who feels known. And that's something we all need. It's something that following Jesus' call to to be his disciple provides in abundance. You see, in response to Jesus' accurate description of his character, right? Someone who's totally honest, completely forthright. Nathaniel asked this question, how do you know me? Now, in answering this, Jesus is going to set up something that will pay off in a second. He'll he'll reference something in the Old Testament. But just for a second, just hit pause as Jesus says this, right? Nathaniel said nothing to him prior to this. Jesus volunteers this. Nathaniel hasn't even spoken yet. And Jesus says, truly, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, no guile. How do you know me, right? Hit pause. His mouth is hanging open. Now, I don't know that it happened exactly like this, but you can't prove it didn't, so we'll go with my idea. Um, I, I, Peter's there, right? These guys are both from Bethsaida. It's small. You guys saw. It's a little place. They have met. They know each other. They might have already been pretty good friends. Philip and Peter know each other, right? And so, now remember, in the, the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're Simon, I'm going to call you Peter right? He, he makes this incredible statement about Peter's character. So hit pause. 
Nathaniel's there with his mouth hanging open. How do you know me? You know, like this. And he looks over at Peter, and Peter's like, I know, right? Like, he knows. He knows me. Maybe you've seen this meme floating around the internet, like on Facebook or something. I saw this recently. And, uh, you know, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in your stupidity. Most comforting thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, I know some of you grew up in a home where stupid was an off-limits word, so don't shoot the messenger here, okay? Uh, I grew up in a home where that word was not allowed in reference to other people, but if you wanted to use it about yourself or something dumb you did, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this made me laugh. Um, and even if you don't like the way it's phrased, the concept or idea behind it should be incredibly comforting, right? That God is fully aware of all of our faults, all of our broken places. He knows all of our failures and idiosyncrasies. He is aware of every single obnoxious character trait that makes it harder for us to be like Jesus. And he still knows and calls you his own. You are fully known. All your mistakes, all the things about you that when you look in the mirror you wish with all your heart were different, he knows and loves you anyway. He calls you into relationship with him. It's like those prayers you start out, well, Lord, blew it again. I know. Come here, child. Let the one who knows you best restore you to wholeness. You see, where all this is going is that not only are we seen and not only are we known, we are loved. We are loved. Jesus tells Nathaniel that he will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in the Bible, the opening of heaven is the sign that God is, is giving a major revelation. We see this in Ezekiel 1.1, right? This massive vision, right? And we see it in the Gospels. Heaven is open. God speaks. You know, in, in the Old Testament, it's usually big revelation, and that's it. In the New Testament, it's big revelation. But there's also this, especially in the Gospels, additional element of God's love that's being expressed. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. There it is. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now you may not know this, but John writes his gospel years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Decades have passed. It's entirely likely that Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have been in circulation among the churches, at least in a limited sense, for years prior to John's gospel coming out. He has literally had decades to think about this. And I want you to see the connection he's making here. Jesus says that Nathanael is truly an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And then later, he references a story from Genesis 28 where Jacob has this dream of a stairway to heaven. Please try to ignore the Led Zeppelin song that's playing in your head right now. Okay? So that you can focus on this. Jacob was a trickster. He was a deceiver. He was a liar. And he has this vision of angels ascending and descending. And yet the text tells us that God loved Jacob. He changed his name to Israel, that he has struggled with God and overcome. Ultimately, Jacob did become a man of his word. 
And so by making reference to Jacob's story, I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to Nathanael is that not only does he see him, not only does he know him, he loves him. And he sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you. The first time I went snowshoeing with my friend Roger, it was clunky and hard and awkward. I thought snowshoes were basically like strapping a tennis racket to your foot. I didn't know, you know. And I learned that they function a lot better. There's, a, there's like a pivot point that you put your foot in, so you can walk kind of normal. you got to spread your legs out a little wider, but you can move through pretty deep snow easily gracefully most of the time (laughs) and even then in that moment when I got tangled up and fell my gracious host saw me he knew me and he loved me And I realized that if that's true in a remote mountain valley in Montana, how much more is it true of the infinite God of the universe? If that's true of me on snowshoes in the middle of nowhere, how much true is it you? Is it true of you in your daily life, at your work, at your school, with your family, in your home, with your neighbors, with your friends? God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and that gives you an incredible amount of confidence to live out the calling he's placed on your life. Did you hear me? We live out our calling in the confidence that we are seen and known and loved by Jesus. Do you have any idea how comforting that is and how much confidence we can live with when we really get our heads and hearts and hands around that idea that there is never a moment that you are not seen and known and loved by Jesus. Listen, when you feel alone, you are not. When you feel misunderstood, you are not. When you feel abandoned, you are not. And the reason that's true is that when he was on the cross dying for your sin in your place, Jesus was alone and misunderstood and abandoned so that you wouldn't have to be. And never a moment goes by that you are not seen and known and loved by Jesus. For those who respond to his call to be his disciples, you can live the rest of your life seen and known and loved but you've got to respond to that call we're going to stand and sing and when we do I'm going to extend the same calling to you to follow Jesus maybe you've never made that decision Maybe you've never decided to follow him you've got an opportunity right now as we sing I would invite, if you're ready if you're ready to say I want to be seen and known and loved by Jesus. I want to follow him with my whole life. You come as we sing. Maybe you're, you're here today and you're like, well, he sees me, but I haven't been looking at him for a while. And you need to repent. You need to turn from that. You don't have to come forward. You can if you want to. But, but I, you ought to tell somebody. Maybe grab someone next to you. Maybe text a friend that you trust. Someone who's mature in the faith and say, hey, I've kind of I've kind of lost sight of Jesus and I need to get refocused on him. And I'm, I'm repenting here. Okay, cool. Maybe you have a prayer need. We'd love to partner with you with, uh, for, for that reason. Uh, if you want to have a conversation with one of our leaders, like, I don't know what my next step is. Well, their next step is right there. And we would encourage you to go there. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to sing together. And you respond as God leads you.